What is up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Gen X Movie Show. Uh, this one is going to be a, a, a good episode. I've been waiting to do this one for a while. But before I get started, uh, I want to tell you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th of Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, any, just basically any place that you can think of that has this much um, wine is pretty rare here in Denver, particularly that's still open. That's not a liquor store. Um, their own, you know, they, they make their own wine. It's really good stuff. I enjoy the 2017 Cabernet. I would highly recommend that. I just checked on the website. It is still there. Go out and check that out. I highly, highly recommend that one. Uh, they also have a partnership with Western Slope Winery called Storm Cellars for a Riesling. I'm not a big fan of that, but I tried it when I was there last and it was very good. They have socially distant tables so you can go di uh, dine out or drink safely. And they also have a virtual wine tasting that uh, that you can sign up for at vfwdenver.com. They are on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th at Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado. Just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. I'd also like to tell you about my friend, Andy Feinstein. Uh, please support our friends at Exto Event Center, located in Denver's vibrant Rhino Arts District. Exto Event Center can host safe socially distanced events for 25 to up to 175 persons outdoors and up to 100 persons indoors. If you're interested in hosting an event for a corporate gathering, fundraiser, client appreciation, birthday or anniversary party, or just general morale boosting happy hour, Exto would love to be a part of it. Please visit uh, extoevents.com for more information and book your private event today. Okay. Today, uh, I have a special guest with me, and I'm going to have a lot of more special guests with me on the, the Gen X movie show. Uh, we had Chris Johnston from Easy Writers Raging Podcast last time, and today we got uh, my colleague and, and great friend from uh, uh, the Gen X music show and a guy I've known for many, 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 many years, uh, coming to you all the way from the other side of the state. It is my friend, Magnus. Hello, Magnus. Greetings in darkness. <laughs> this is the, if, if I had my better, favorite time of the year. If I had better equipment, I would insert eerie music right now. Um, we are going well, to- Well, you know, yeah. Marty, I'm very excited. It's October, yeah. it's scary movie season. Oh, yeah. I love it. Well, today we kind of get a special movie that it's a cult movie, but not a cult movie. It's a very highly regarded film that spun a remake uh, just a couple of years ago. And that movie is Suspiria, uh, Dario, Dario Argento Suspiria. Um, and it is an interesting uh, movie in a sense that it is not like anything that came out in the late 70s. Um, just on a, on a, on a, 10,000 foot view of this movie. How would you describe Suspiria to the people who are listening to this show? Uh, Non-American. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's very European and it's yeah. specifically very Italian. Mm -hmm. You know, for those who don't know, there's a genre of Italian movies called yellow movies, which means yellow. They're based on pulp novels. And they're called that because they have yellow spines, so you could spot them easily in the bookstore. And, you know, the setup of, of the Italian yellow genre is pretty simple. And there's usually a, a foreigner, an American, usually 
who's on vacation or there for business and who stumbles upon some bizarre circumstance, whether it's a murder or something, and has to then that foreigner is the protagonist that has to unravel it. And I think you know, the yellow genre is, is typically not horror or supernatural. It's yeah. typically more thriller and pulp sort of stuff. So this was, in my opinion, the the moving the yellow genre into horror and the supernatural. Very um, awesome which I love, but from an American point of view, if you are used to Hollywood movies, you're used to narrative structure, and that's not their bag. That's not what they're into. And if you are into plot, it's gonna frustrate you. But I think that's true of most European movies, especially the Italians in general. But if you can let that go, it's amazing. And we'll talk about all the reasons why it is. Well, this movie is very, uh, very good at setting a vibe. Um, and, ve and very good at setting an atmosphere. Um, and we will get into that in a second, but this really is Dario Argento's, uh, well, his best film uh, and his most highly regarded film. Uh, Dario Argento was a, is a Italian movie director specializing in horror. I think he had a big hand in the movie Zombie, um, which was, uh, it, it was an Italian zombie film that came out in like 81. Um, and so that is another highly regarded film of his, but this really is his magnum opus. And uh, it came out uh, in 77 during a time where, uh, as Magnus is saying here, it was kind of melding the, the, the genres of different Italian films. Because yet people have to realize the most people understood about Italian film was probably spaghetti westerns. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Particularly all through the 60s into the early 70s and obviously Clint Eastwood uh, made his career basically doing um, spaghetti westerns. And so this was a different kind of vibe in a horror genre that by the late 70s, this is pre-Halloween, by the late 70s had become really kind of schlocky and campy. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting you mentioned those spaghetti westerns because the, you know, the Argento and the Italian movies in general are made the same way, which is they typically had crews and actors from many different countries. And on set, they would speak their own language. Yes. They would say their lines in their own language. And then in post-production, they would overdub everything in one language. Yes. Which is absolutely bizarre from our point of view. Um, and it makes for some hilarious dubbing oh, yeah. um, inconsistencies. It <laughs> um, just, you know, you can't imagine an actor. I think I've even heard Clint Eastwood say that, that, you know, when he first started doing those, it was just like, There'd be a Spanish uh, grip and a you know Italian actress and an American you know <laughs> editor and it's like everyone was speaking their own language so um, you know but you know in this instance I think the overdubbing adds kind of to the surrealism of the experience yeah because you can tell it's not their voice coming out of these mouths it's really odd yeah and it, it this is based on a, a book called Suspiria di Profundis. And uh, it's a, just kind of a, a book of superstition is basically what it is. Um, and uh, it's, its concept really is about the magic triangle in Europe where uh, France, Germany, and Switzerland meet, kind of a nexus point of those two. And there's a, a, guy, a gentleman named Rudolf Steiner uh, who was an occultist who kind of had an idea about there being just some sort of mystical, magical area of Germany, um, France, and Switzerland that uh, 
generated magic basically um and this is kind of where that uh dario argento specifically got his idea for this film which is set in germany but it looks very italian you know <laughs> that's the sure. best way i could say it you know it is it is very much uh it is very much it's supposed to be set in germany the outline of the initial building that well the dance studio is set is is a, a copy of a, a building called the whale building in uh, Germany and but the rest of it particularly in one scene where the blind man walks in the middle of the courtyard is very Italian <laughs> so it's this mix of things but it, it somehow and, and maybe you could say the uh, uh, kind of talk about this Matt it, it somehow works the aesthetic somehow lends itself to this uh, kind of almost a sublimely uh, creepy vibe of the movie. Yeah, in some ways it reminds me of the great Edgar Allan Poe gothic tales that might be set in, in a specific country, but it feels like it could be anywhere and yet nowhere because there's so many mixes of architecture and language and styles. I get that feeling when I watch this period. It's like, okay, I know this is supposed to be set in Germany, but it feels like just kind of a fairy tale Europe, yeah. right? And I think, I know Argento has said that one of the big inspirations for this film was fairy tales, in, in particular Snow White, which yeah. is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it does have that dreamlike quality. And I think the fact that you can't really pin down where it is exactly in your mind, you know it's supposed to be in Germany, but as a look German, it's, it definitely helps that fantasy element. Yeah, and it's, it's to me, um, the, the, the fairy tale aspect of this really is heightened by the use of color. Oh boy, if you like color, you will love Suspiria because that is you know a beautiful what? movie. It's amazing. It's Technicolor. And my understanding is it was the last movie filmed in the original Technicolor. And in yeah. fact, it was produced on the last existing Technicolor machine in Italy. Is that, yeah. is that right? Have you heard that? That is 100% correct. And, amazing. Uh, <laughs> And, it, and the interesting thing about it is that there's a, a old Hollywood actress who plays, uh, uh, well, what's her name? The head of the mother. Um, um, ah, anyway, I'm going to have to look this up. Um, she is a old Hollywood actress. And this was her last ever movie. Um, mm. And she, uh, what's her name? Joan Bennett. She plays Madame Blanc. And uh, there was a kind of this, deliberate i i feel and this is just me guessing but it is kind of a deliberate use of kind of an old-timey kind of approach to like particularly the filming at the same time i'm sure in 1977 uh particularly the opening murder uh i'm sure people were shocked because that is it's extremely violent and extremely bloody and I'm sure at that time people were would have been absolutely shocked by that. Not only that, the the brightness of it, just how in your face it is. And I don't know if uh, I've ever seen anything particularly like that. Something with so much color, and yet is so violent at the same time. Yeah, that opening scene is is quite amazing. I think it actually overshadows the rest of the movie to some it extent. Does. Yeah. It, it feels an impact like it should have been the climax. In that respect, it's kind of like Psycho, where the opening murder or the first murder is so astoundingly visual and visceral that it's really what you remember most about it. You know, the climax kind of is an afterthought. 
Absolutely. Um, and it, it is interesting too, in that this, the person that's murdered, you don't know them. It's mm-hmm. someone you just see, and it's not the main character, and you don't know really how they're supposed to relate to this main character that you've been introduced to. So, yep. for me, when I first saw it, I remember thinking, "Wait, who is this person? That's not the main character, is it? I don't mm-hmm. think so. So, why am I following her? Is this the main character now?" So, I was confused as to why we were seeing this. Um, uh, yeah, and then and then of course we know what happened to that. Um, Pat, is it uh, Pat? Pat was her name, right? Pat Hingle. Yeah, in the character in the movie, we know what happened to Pat, but of course our main character Susie doesn't know. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> it's one of those great tricks, kind of like an old Columbo show where we know something that the protagonist doesn't, right? Well, because it, uh, she finally gets, you know, we're not going to go into the details of the movie, but she gets into the finally you're introduced to the dance school, which is really the plot is a American girl in a foreign country at a a uh, creepy dance uh, ballet uh, academy. Um, and it turns out to be, you know, spoilers for those who haven't seen it, but, you know, it turns out to be uh, the Coven of Witches uh, run the place. Uh, and what is interesting about it is you are introduced to the inside of this place and everything is bright red. Everything is velvet looking. I mean, it is just blue, 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 red, red, red. And it is striking to me how the first conversation you hear between everyone there is about, is, is, the, is Madame Blanc talking to the police about the murder of the person we just talked about, right? And this is how this girl is introduced to this situation. And it makes me wonder if, I, I, and I don't think I've ever seen a setup to a horror movie like this before. You're introduced to an extremely, as you said, the setup with the with the extremely violent scene, and then you go right in, and it's just like they're just talking about it. But she, the the, the protagonist, quote unquote, has no, and for the rest of the film, has no clue what happened. Just and we never see those detectives again. Yep. The 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 murder of Pat is hardly ever brought up again, and so it's almost like um kind of disconnected from the rest of the movie mm-hmm. because let's let's be honest if if they took that part out where we actually see the murder would that have changed the story in any way probably not mm-hmm. um so you know the reason argento showed that to us so is though we know that the danger the protagonist is in even though she doesn't mm-hmm. which ratchets up the tension right yes and i think that's done to set up a uh um as you're right, it's kind of a Columbo thing. You know, you know who could, you did, you know, you know who did the murder, but but the rest of it is not trying to figure out her murder, as you point mm-hmm. out. The rest it's of just it, kind of forgotten about. The rest of it is maybe, and I think maybe it was done as a uh, as a device to set you on edge and give you an idea that later on, anyone who comes runs afoul of these. Uh, of these witches is going to meet a nasty end, which obviously repeats itself during the movie, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess that's probably what it is. It really is a is a just a corker of a scene though. I mean, you, when she's looking throughout the, out the uh, window and she sees those two eyes looking at mm-hmm. her and there's no music playing. And that's something that we, you, you and I need to talk about here uh the music in this is very interesting it's very loud 
yeah. when it's playing. It's very loud, and it's done by the Italian progressive rock group Doblin. And uh, just all the theme music and all of that is happening, and it's loud, 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 and then suddenly goes quiet. Mm-hmm. And for 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 what seems like a couple minutes, there will be no music, and the events happen with no music, and it kind of reverses your expectation of what happens normally because usually the music kind of creeps up. This was dead silence. Mm-hmm. There's a they use music to great effect in this film. Um, even at the beginning, when Susie is in the airport. Mm-hmm. She's walking toward the exit, and the door is opening and closing as people come in and out. Mm-hmm. And when the door is open, you hear the goblin music, and when it closes, mm-hmm. the music goes off. It's like, oh, once I go through these doors, it's like a carnival mm-hmm. fantasy land. It's really interesting, and they, you know, part of it is the use of the silence that you yep. you mentioned. It's great, and and it's one of those things you don't know if any other director would have made that choice. You know, it's a definitely an unconventional choice. Well, yeah. Um, it's almost like he didn't want to distract you from the horror of the final, you know, act with the music. So, yeah, yeah. it's very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, it's like, I noticed, you notice in Spaghetti Westerns, the music's very blaring, too. Uh, Ennio, Ennio Morricone is, uh, was really known as, as very an in-your-face kind of composer for film. And that seems to be a trademark of Italian film of the 60s and 70s. Um, but the difference with what Argento did is the, the silence. And I think that really is cutting off the noise. And I think there was something supremely um, wise and, and uh, someone who was really kind of thinking the right way on this because reversing your expectation on that heightened the tension in a way that I, I, I mean, in the many times I've seen this movie, that the first time I saw it, I was like, why is there no music? Why is there no, basically no sound? All you hear is her, right? Mm-hmm. And you're wondering why this is going on. I mean, there, we should be hearing noise right now. And then, you know, obviously something happens. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And I think, um, if memory serves in the Italian movie tradition, at least back then, um, they composed the music before they even saw the movie or even made the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Hollywood style, the composer will see various cuts of the movie in progress and compose based on what you know they're seeing on the visuals. In the Italian tradition, it was totally different. You know, the, the director would say to the composer, "This is the kind of movie I'm going to make. Now go write the music," and then mm-hmm. <laughs> they would try to fit the two finished products together in in post production. So it's kind of amazing that it worked as it did. Oh yeah, and 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 the the how would you describe because of the dubbing? How would you describe the acting in this movie? Mm. That's a good question. I, I think you know if you want to talk about the main character, Susie. Mm-hmm. I don't know the actress's name, but Just she is. Hunter? Yeah, that sounds right. She is um, perfectly waifish mm-hmm. and innocent mm-hmm. and seemingly vulnerable yeah so <laughs> so she conveys that and she does it with expressions her face she has these beautiful big expressive eyes mm-hmm. um and she 
they dress her to look maybe younger or smaller than she actually is. I feel like, you know, she wore shoes and dresses that were maybe one size too big for her. Mm -hmm. So she looks tiny and vulnerable in that environment. Yeah. And I think, I think she was perfectly cast. Um, and there's some real veterans in there too, in, in supporting roles, which are great. Some of the others are, you know, very typical European cinema, a hammy. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a um, lot of, there's a lot of hammy acting in this. But it's just, it's weird. It's, it's, it's hard to really determine a lot because, you know, let, you know, let's face it. The dubbing is, uh, uh, spotty at best. Spotty. I, it, but that kind of, I mean, I'll be honest with you. It helps the movie. It lends to the atmosphere of surreality in it. Um, Definitely. Uh, the, uh, there, there was one line, I got to point out, I, I wasn't going to talk about beats in the movie, but there was one line where they're interviews, introducing you to the kind of like the, the all-purpose guy, the handyman, and they said, this is uh, whatever his name is. He's very ugly. He does, uh, and he, he's very ugly, and he doesn't mind if you tell him so. <laughs> yeah, well, let's have Kim. before. <laughs> 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 I, but it, it, it's very but it's very European and I think and then before we kind of transition to a, a different uh, kind of scope here I, I kind of want to say that it the movie in that framework becomes a lot different and the movie is if you think about it the ending is kind of to me the ending is anticlimactic a bit, you know, I would say that's just in my own opinion. Uh, but it is a movie that is very, very much more about atmosphere. And as you pointed out, the, the fairy tale aspect of it, and that is heightened by the way it was made, right? And could you get away with a movie nowadays that is all basically all Atmosphere, maybe, uh, maybe the movie The Witch in 2015 was 90% atmosphere. Um, I would say that's a uh, that's a good analogy in that there's not a lot of story in The mm -hmm. Witch. It's not really plot driven. Yeah. Um, and there are parts, but, but still the setting is very realistic. It's, it looks like the woods. It looks like a cabin. Mm -hmm. Everything in Suspiria looks like it came out of a nightmare. Yeah. You know. Um, and I can tell actually it's a, a lot of influence on Tim Burton and some of his Burton-esque dreamscapes. Yeah. The way perspective is sort of shifted and, and unsettling and mm -hmm. use of colors and sort of the carnival aspect of the music. Um, there's, there's really nothing like it. Could you get away with it? Depends on the audience. You know, I think uh, for American audiences, the ending is so anticlimactic and abrupt but that's again in the italian style you know italian movies are known for just kind of ending mm -hmm. even before a climax even happens um and certainly um one time when i was watching this the person i was with she was like that's it that's the ending like and then she told me she never me she goes i thought it, i thought it was building to something like that was it and she was very frustrated <clears throat> and i i understand why you know mm -hmm. um so, you know, it, for a mainstream American audience, could you get away with it? No. No. For an independent movie, for a more select audience, you know, probably. Yeah, I agree. We're kind of going to bring in the remake with this because uh, they remade Suspiria in 2018 and uh, it's got Chloe Grace Moretz in it. 
Um, Dakota Johnson. Dakota Johnson, Tilda Swinton. Um, mm. In three roles, Tilda Swinton plays yeah. three different characters. Yeah. Three, three different characters. And let's kind of compare and contrast. And I, like I said, we're going to avoid going through plot beats <laughs> and the entire story, but we're going to, just going to talk about I'm going to kind of introduce it with a difference in atmosphere. Um, first of all, the movie uh, directed by Luca. Oh, I always mess up his last name. It's the guy who directed uh, Call Me By Your Name. Uh, hmm. Guagadino? Guagadino? Anyway. Gesundheit, uh, by the way. <laughs> uh, this movie is very feminist, I would say. Um, <clears throat> intentionally. Um, and certainly, you know, we talk about the violence of the first scene in the Suspiria from 1977. It's got nothing and absolutely nothing on the death scenes in, in the remake. Wouldn't you, would you agree? Um, yes. And I think a part of that is because the setting in the remake is so much more realistic. It looks yeah. so much more like the real world. Whereas the original had all these Technicolor um, drenched scenes. The remake is, it's all browns and oranges and very muted colors. Yeah. It looks like 1980s Germany. You know, you see the Berlin Wall, it's all very drab and mm -hmm. rainy. So the visual contrast right away is, is what struck me. Oh, yeah. this is a movie that's set in the real world. Unlike yeah. Suspiria, right? But the original. Um, and as a result of that realistic setting, the violence, such as it is, feels more brutal to me. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, it feels like more like it's happening to a real person in the real world. So, yeah, I agree. The, the, it, I wouldn't say it's a better film violence or more scary. It's just very different. Yeah. But but just as effective, if not more effective. You know? It was certainly more, uh, to me, it was... Uh, not better, but more jarring, I should say, particularly the first death. Um, the way that was done and how it lingers is, is I guess, more effective, I guess. It's just I mean, the way. <laughs> there, are some, there are some violent scenes in that movie that just absolutely haunted me. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and the slow burn, too. I, I think that's probably something else we should talk about. Mm -hmm. People used, would say that the original Suspiria was slow, but compared to the remake, yeah, it's a freight train. The remake takes its time, you know, and for me, those long scenes of just looks and exposition and dancing where there's not a lot of dialogue actually makes the brutality of the violence when it happens more effective. Yeah. You know, because it like shatters that a slow burn tranquility um so the pace actually really helps the movie yeah. to be effective but it's not for everyone you know i've again i've watched that movie with people who were just bored to death by it and uh really yeah but i i loved it I loved interesting it. I, I can't imagine being bored but although i tell you what it is an hour it is uh two hours two and a half hours long it is it it's, is it is uh, something to get through as far as that goes and if you're someone who is like Every, very John Carpenter, everything has to be an hour and a half long, that kind of thing, uh, which is nothing wrong with that because John Carpenter is one of my favorite directors of all time. Um, Me too. I would say that, you know, that's, that's one way of looking at it, or there's the slow burn part of it, and this is definitely a slow burn, uh, and it also heightens, the, heightens its moments of violence more than you, you saw in 
the, the original Suspiria. Now, the, the basic thing is that uh, what this director did was take the uh, Argento's original concept, which was a trilogy, uh, which uh, also was, I believe, the second one was a movie called Inferno, which I saw. It's really bad. Um, and then there's one that he, he there came out in 2007 that I'm forgetting the title of that I haven't seen. But it was kind of this trilogy based on The Three Mothers. What the remake of Suspiria does is take all of Argento's ideas and find a way to incorporate them into the same movie, which is an interesting thing to attempt to do. Right, it's not. It's kind of like uh, uh, Peter Jackson shoehorning the Silmarillion into the Hobbit. Right, uh, it's just yeah, gonna happen there. Um, but at the same time, this works as opposed to the Hobbit movies, which it didn't work. Um, and I think it the movie was all the more better as a reimagining than it is a remake, because it really is a different animal. Yeah, almost every almost every creative decision they made was the exact opposite that the yeah. filmmakers in the original made. We talked about the color palette. We talked about the realism versus the surrealism. The acting, yeah. I mean, the acting in the remake is absolutely top notch. Tilda Swinton's amazing. Dakota Johnson, who I only knew from those stupid Fifty Shades movies, mm-hmm. just incredible acting job. Everyone is so good in it. Um, the, the, you know, you get into thing. What I love about the remake, I think, in general, is that it took things that were in the original and and built them up. Yeah, and and made sure that they felt like a real world. Because if you if you ditch the surrealism aspect of it, then that's kind of the position you're in. Then you have to start explaining some things. If you're not in the dream, you're in the real world. Well, then we got to flesh some of this out, explain some of this, make it seem like a real world. I love the scene early in the movie where they're talking about it's like a political thing like who's going to be yeah. the leader of, of the coven going forward and yeah. um tilda swin loses the vote i think right yeah. is that am i remembering that right she lost. Yep. and so and so right away you, you you're like oh there's like a, a power struggle within this mm-hmm. this organization which adds a whole other interesting dimension to it mm-hmm. um but again that's just fleshing out the world more you know what is it like to, to be in that world and the dancing is amazing you know, and in the original it's set in the dance academy but you see very little dancing there's only one and, dance scene <laughs> and then and then the remake there's dancing all the time yep and to your point about the silence i think there's at least one scene where dakota johnson they tell her we want you to dance with no music that's how we see how good a dancer you are or something like that right yep and so she's doing this amazing dance to silence which is bizarre and mm-hmm. I found it fascinating it was, it was. Uh, again a great great use of silence you know and the music is very different than the music that the goblins made for the original oh yeah um nice was it the guy from radiohead who did uh tom yes york? yeah it was tom york yeah. mm-hmm. and again the contrast couldn't be bigger it's like very subdued and it kind of hangs in the background and just provides some color it's not that glaring carnival thing that the the goblins did Mm -hmm. so almost everything about it is a different creative choice and it makes a very different beast yeah it's a it's a basic it's the they took the basic story and well they definitely and when, when it comes to the end they changed some things um but they did build upon what was there 
Um, like, remember in the first movie, the exposition dump, basically is what I call it, where she, where she goes to the, meets those professors somewhere in Munich, and, oh. uh, like, they tell the same story twice. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, well, that's exactly what the remake of Suspiria is filling in. It's like we're taking yeah. this exposition dump from the end of the first movie and like sprinkling it in over the entire uh, movie this time. Yeah, that exposition stuff is definitely the weakest part of the original because it takes place, you know, she's talking to that professor. It's in daylight. It's clearly in front of a university or office. No, it's like the BMW people. building in uh, Munich. There you go. <laughs> and so it really, for that section, it just removes her from that surrealistic nightmare that we've been immersed in and it took me out of the movie i'm like oh here's the exposition part mm -hmm. i think i think they wisely in the remake chose to um sprinkle that information throughout in a more organic way right yes 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 uh, i and i feel that that was better served for it but I, I can't say and i can't and this is something that i've been thinking about since i saw the remake i don't favor one or the other, because to me, they're two separate movies, right? They're, no, they're sure. with the same story, two separate movies with the same story. And um, as you pointed out correctly, the first movie is very fairy tale, and you can't escape it, right? It's there. It is a, um, it's almost like a Grimm's fairy tale in a sense that it's got this sense of dread to it, right? But you can't, you know, it, it's like you can place why you know it's there, but it's just kind of always floating around. And it's basically essay by the use of color. In the in the remake in 2018, is much more of a, a journey. It's a it's a it's a movie that is a journey, and you're following, you know, Dakota Johnson or Susie, I should say, um, through her time at this dance studio and i think uh, as you pointed out one of the good decisions was actually making people dance you know as if like i said they dance once in the first movie once which i thought well, was I, really strange <laughs> and i love how they incorporated the dance into the witchcraft the, yeah. you know the, it's a part of the the, the spells that they weave and the, the ceremonies and so it's actually part of their operation not just a cover you know i always felt like in the original the dance academy was just a cover for their real deal the dancing in the remake i felt like was a part of their uh, raison d'etre mm -hmm. um I, I think the ironically the ending of the original is much more american yeah the hero survives and destroys the monster and while it's an abrupt and anticlimactic ending it's basically a happy ending yeah um the ending of the remake is bleak. Oh. <laughs> yeah, not to spoil the ending for everyone who hasn't seen it. And I would say if you haven't seen it, See check it, it out. Mm -hmm. But it is a, it is not a Hollywood happy ending. No. So I, 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 I will say this about the. I think I think I interpreted the uh, remake. The the excuse me, the remake. The uh, 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 the ending of the original a little differently in a sense that they do leave a little ambiguity by her expression once she walks away, yeah. uh, which I thought was a, a good kind of subtle thing, but they didn't really explore it. It was kind of done. And that's really yeah. where the anti-climax is. It's kind of a weak ending for the build, but it wasn't the, the point of the movie was the journey. 
the there there was almost in the in the remake there was almost something existentially uh dreadful about the way that movie ended you know because mm-hmm. it's like a kind of a it wasn't a hero there was no hero, and, and, and in fact that was almost more of a 70s movie kind of ending than uh the original movie that was in the 70s i was just gonna say that if, if I, I found it very 70s-esque in that there's no hero there's no clear victory in the end mm-hmm. it's um yeah it's almost shakespearean kind of the way yeah. it ends i think um so yeah i mean it, I, I think both movies are very demanding of audiences but they i think they ask different things of their audiences i think both require patience mm-hmm. especially for an american viewer yeah. Um, the first one demands that you surrender your attachment to logic mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. to a certain extent and narrative to a certain extent. The second one demands that you chill out for a while mm-hmm. and let it unfold at the pace it needs to. And that's asking a lot of people these days. And I, I know that the second one, the, the remake was very divisive and a lot of critics hated it. Um, oh, length was a critique and pace was a critique and there's no question it's demanding but there's just so much richness in it if you can if you can have that patience well if you can invest your time in a movie I mean let's 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 face it there's a, a lot of times I mean I'll even include myself in this sometimes I'm just not I just can't face a three-hour long movie but it's worth it if you find a good one you know this isn't lawrence of arabia all right we're not we're not going for a nearly four-hour epic here this is a this is a movie that has high action uh moments that kind of speed things up right and sometimes i think uh, that's done to pace the movie but it is Certainly, artistically, uh, you and I are in full agreement on it. It was certainly something completely different. And I, people don't like to be challenged, I think, sometimes. Um, People don't like to have their expectations challenged. Um, There was a movie that Steve Martin did in the late 90s called uh, The Spanish Prisoner, where he plays a a bad guy. You know, he's just, he's, not he's not a good guy in it he's uh uh just that's the way it was and he wasn't the protagonist and people hated that movie because they expect steve martin to be one way and i think that over time people learn to you know kind of adjust their expectations uh with this movie you're, this is a movie you're gonna have to think about the, the remake you're just gonna have to sit and, and wonder think about how you are personally affected by the events of the movie which is yeah hard to do especially now with a pandemic going on you know yeah and people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter you know um so it's it's going to be harder and harder for future audiences to appreciate either of these movies i think yeah um yeah. i appreciate them for very different things um i love the world that argento created like i just i just just jump in that pool of all those beautiful colors and images and the way that he set up shots and the way perspective is is changed and um, things that don't make any real sense at all like the eyes the floating eyes what is that 
it's a <laughs> it's a symbol of what was following her. Maybe it's the witches looking at her remotely. Who knows? Maybe it was her paranoia. I mean, but it's such a haunting image, you know. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'll say this, and then we'll kind of wrap it up with this. Um, I would highly recommend both movies. Uh, yeah. I would highly recommend watching the first one and then the second one. Not to, not for any narrative purposes, but just to contrast them. You don't have to watch the, the you can just watch them. Just watch the differences and enjoy the contrast. Because I think that, that you can enjoy both mo movies equally without surrendering yourself to critique, I think. And, and I, the filmmakers of the second one, um, and I'm, I'm sorry that I don't know their names, the director and whatnot, but you know, it's, it's easy sometimes or easier to make a good film if the original wasn't great. Like for example, The Thing, the original The Thing was pretty much a schlock monster fest from the 50s. And when, and when James, uh, John Carpenter remade it, he made something very different. He took that basic idea and made a masterpiece. But the original movie was not a great movie. In this instance, they made from an original great movie an equally great movie that's mm -hmm. completely different. And it's great in a different way. That I think is so hard to do. And I actually can't think of any other example <laughs> where the original was also a masterpiece. Yeah. Well, you know? No, I, I did that, that. It really stands out. And, uh, you know, you brought up uh, the thing. They attempted, I mean, they called it a prequel, but let's face it, they attempted to remake oh. the thing in 2011. And they took a great, which is really regarded as a brilliant movie John, that, from John Carpenter uh, and uh, his vision of it and it turned it into a CGI filled mess. I don't know this thing of I don't know this thing of which you speak. We will never speak of it. <laughs> this thing, this thing does not exist. This thing called the thing. Um, <laughs> uh, so yes, would you would you recommend? Is it is the is the point? I would say yes. I'd recommend both. I would recommend both. You know, you got to be in different moods, right? So mm -hmm. these are both movies. I think you got to be in the mood for the experience. So. Um, it's not something I could say, yeah, do a double feature on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, no, because you, you gotta be in the mood, you gotta be mellow, mm -hmm. you know, you gotta have nothing else going on, you gotta turn your phone off for a couple hours, you gotta turn the lights off. Um, you here's what I would say don't watch it with people that you whom you know are impatient yeah. or have expectations of no. movies. They will be miserable and they will make you miserable. And that, that affects because I've seen both of these movies multiple times with multiple people mm -hmm. and who you watch it with affects how you experience it. Oh yeah. You know, Oh yes. you know, the first time I saw the original, I saw it with, and she actually introduced me to it, um, a girl and she loved that movie and wanted me to experience it. And boy, did that help me immerse myself in that world. And then years later, I tried to show it to another girlfriend who had never seen it and she hated it. And then I, like, and then she, and then she made me miserable for making it. <laughs> Maybe it should be a litmus test for for people in the states. It's like, Maybe. But I guess I'm, you know, if like, if you think your dad's gonna be into it, and you know he likes action movies and mm -hmm. you know World War II documentaries, probably not gonna be his thing. No. You know. 
know, uh, I did watch it uh, once with my dad, and he was, he told me, he said, like, uh, the original, he said, like, this is just a 70s movie. This is what he told me. This is a 70s movie. He said, all we need is the, uh, is the Morricone music. <laughs> I went, well, it is, you know, a spaghetti horror, you know, but. Well, they're, they're both very feminine. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you said the second one was feminist. I don't know that I agree. I don't know that I disagree. I, I want to think about that. But yeah. certainly, they're both feminine. Mm -hmm. They're both female-driven in story and character. They both explore feminine power mm -hmm. in different ways. And, um, and so you got to know that going in, I think. Because, well, you, you, you brought up the thing, right? The thing has all men. Like, all men, like exactly. Joker, all men. So this is the flip side of that, where yeah, there was like two guys, three guys in it, but they played nothing parts, uh, except for the guy who got killed in the first one. Um, it really is a female-dominated movie. I mean, for both sure. of them. And uh, you, if you're if you're not used to that, you're not gonna if you if your expectations are against that, you're you're gonna reject the movie. I don't know why you would, but anyway. I, the reason I don't know if I believe I agree that it's feminist is it's about feminine power wielded against other women yeah you know m men aren't portrayed as idiots or loathsome oh, in true. fact in the in fact in the remake dakota johnson and you remember at the end she actually is very tender to him when she yeah. tells him about what happened to his wife and you know he's like the only main male character in the film and mm -hmm. i thought he was portrayed very sympathetically and had a lot of pathos and um and so I don't know that it's feminist in that sense, but it's definitely feminine. I'll, I'll yeah. agree with you there. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to give Matt the, or Magnus the last word there. And uh, thank you for joining me. I, I, we're going to, I mean, anytime I got a horror movie, I'm going to have to have Magnus on because we, uh, we have a we shared love of horror films. So uh, thank you. Thank you for joining me. And we'll see, you'll see uh, Magnus again on the Gen X uh, show. Thanks, Marty.